0: like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 25. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Father, you are our teacher Your Spirit instructs us in the Word and in the way that we ought to walk. And we submit to His authority here this morning and pray that You will guide us and that You will enlighten our minds and hearts, that You will help us to focus on that which is of You. Glorify Your name in our midst this day, we ask. And Father, as the service is occurring concurrently and other classes are being taught here, we ask that You will be present with each and everyone. We ask you, Father, to bring many into your kingdom this day, here and around the world. We ask, Lord, that the evil one will be defeated and bound as he has been. But pray, Father, in each life this will be a reality. We just submit now to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the 15th chapter of the book of First Samuel. The 15th and 16th chapters of this particular book are very, very meaningful. In the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, we find that the Lord came to, the, to Saul through Samuel and instructed him to carry out that which God had ordained from, from hundred years, hundreds of years before. And that was the destruction of the Amalekite nation. This was giving Saul an opportunity to demonstrate again that, or to demonstrate for the first time, actually, obedience. And as we know very well, he did go out and he collected an army. He defeated and routed the Amalekites. But as he, brought the, um, as he came back from the victory over the Amalekites, we were, we were told last week in our study that he built a monument to himself, we're told, and that Samuel then encountered him at Gilgal. And there at Gilgal, you remember Saul came running up to Samuel and said, I've done the will of the Lord, you know like he had done a real great thing. And, of course, Samuel asked him the very pointed question, then what means the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And, of course, immediately Saul defended himself by saying, well, the people made me do it. At least he didn't blame the devil uh, at this point. He blamed the people for making him do it. And, of course, Saul's, Samuel's response, God's response through Samuel In verses 22 and 23, I'd like to read again because they are very crucial verses. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I think there's a, there are many, of course, key truths in that particular passage, and we talked about some of them last time, but I think it really always boils down to the, that foundational factor as to the acceptance or the rejection of the word of God. God has spoken to us through his word. God has spoken to us through his Son, who is the living word. And to reject God's word is to reject God, and God, as a result, will reject that person. And that is what is happening to Saul. So today, as we read on, beginning at verse 24 to the end of the chapter, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Samuel, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him, came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here we have, um, I think, one of the better examples in Scripture of shallow repentance. Saul, of course, is fleeing from the fact that he is receiving repercussions for his actions. He's hoping to deflect the consequences that have been proclaimed by Samuel. He admits his sin, but notice he keeps clinging to the excuse. He feared the people. And listen to their voice. Oh yeah, I sinned, but, but, it's because I feared the people. And listened to their voice. I think one of the factors that is so true of Scripture is that we come before the Lord with no ifs, ands, buts, or, nors, or fors. We stand totally before God revealed as to whom we are, and we have no option but to confess our sin and to turn from it with no excuses whatsoever. It becomes clear, I think, to us as we read through this, that Saul's main concern was his pride. He begs Samuel to pardon him and to what? Go with him through the public form of worshiping the Lord. He didn't want to appear rejected before his men. He wanted to look good before his army. He desperately sought public honor and public acclaim. He was king. He had come from nobody to being somebody. And he didn't want that to change. It reminds me of, of a biography we watched uh, the other night of one of the Hollywood movie stars who once she had received a certain amount of acclaim, she just couldn't stand it if that acclaim was diminished in any way or if the honor she received was in any way diminished, she just couldn't stand it because she had gotten this great acclaim. And, and that's, that's human nature. We, you know, we're, like, we're like Satan who, who, who's, a, who's a great magnet is drawing everything into himself. And this is our natural tendency is to draw everything into ourselves. At first, Samuel refused Saul's request. And he repeated the Lord's judgment as if Saul hadn't heard it the first time. He said, you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And what we we see here is that Samuel made that, in effect, what he thought would be his final statement to Saul, and he turned to leave. And Saul, in his desperation, grabbed onto Samuel's garment to hold him, and it tore his robe. As a consequence, we discover Samuel used this as another teaching moment, without missing a beat, as, the, as maybe even held the, the torn piece, or as Saul hold the, held the torn piece of Samuel's robe in his hands, Samuel said to him, "Just as you have torn this robe, so the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you." Then Samuel seeks to remind Saul of God's immutability, that God does not change, and he proclaimed that that Saul, your insincere and shallow repentance is not going to change the things you discover as you read through this passage and into the next chapter, that that Samuel was not happy about this at all. Samuel was not happy about Saul's fall (coughs) from grace and power. And so showing compassion on him, Saul relented and Saul, I'm sorry, Samuel relented and he went with Saul to, to, to where the men were in camp there at Gilgal and he went there to preside over the sacrifice that was to be made, this public worship. But what we find here is so characteristic of Samuel, even in this, in the fact that he's relented and, okay, I'm going to go with you and we'll have this sacrifice so that you can have your another little day of glory here. But even here, Samuel uses it as an opportunity to hammer home truth to Israel in an act that certainly must have humiliated Saul if he thought about it, but which served as a vivid lesson. He commanded that Agag, the king of the Amalekites, be brought before him. Now, remember, the Amalekites had been routed and killed, uh, but, but they kept one. God had said they were all to be killed, man, woman, child, animals. The whole thing was to be wiped out as a cancer. And yet Agag was kept by Saul. Of course, he said, the people made me do it. But nevertheless, he was kept. And so Samuel commanded, bring Agag before me. Now, our passage, as it's translated here in the NASB, uh, says that he was brought, that he came cheerfully. Now, the Hebrew word which is translated in the NASB as cheerfully is a compound word. It's a word where you've got more than one uh, Hebrew word attached together here. And its parts have different meanings. And so, basically, what this is saying here is that Agag was in fetters, he was bound, but at the same time he had confidence that he would be free. So, if you get that picture, he's coming, you know, his hands are tied behind his back or however he was bound. He was being brought bound, but he wasn't coming with his head down expecting the worst, he was coming gladly because he was expecting probably to be freed. The worst is over. And this seems to be supported by the last phrase in that verse where it says, Agag thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. I will somehow escape death, at least in this situation. But he knew nothing of the prophet Samuel. His confidence rather quickly evaporated when he saw Samuel draw a sword, possibly from Saul. And notice again the words, the words which Samuel uses. Samuel is such a, A neat guy when it comes to using words. Such a great turn of words, even as we read back there, to obey is better than sacrifice, you know. Uh, What means the lowing of the oxen that I hear, you know. Uh, Quotable quotes if there are any. And he says to him, in effect, that as you, Agag, have made mothers childless, so I'm going to make your mother childless. And as a result, Samuel killed Agag. He displays anger here. Samuel displays an anger and a frustration at Saul's blatant disobedience. And so he hews, the scripture says he hews Agag in pieces before the Lord. So Samuel fulfills God's command. But it doesn't do Saul a speck of good because he didn't do it. Samuel did it for him. After this dramatic demonstration at Gilgal, we're told that Samuel returned to his home in Ramah. And the scripture tells us that Saul similarly returned to his ancestral home at Gibeah. And as we've noted already, the, the, the two towns are not really very far apart. But nevertheless, we discover, and tragically so, that Saul would never again see Samuel. He was deprived of the most important counsel that was available at the very hour he needed that counsel. We read that Samuel grieved over Saul. This could imply that although Samuel would never again see Saul or offer him counsel or offer him the word of the Lord, he might have been willing to counsel Saul if Saul had come to him, if Saul had sought him out, as he did at one time far earlier in his life. But what is interesting is that the word in Hebrew, which is translated grieve here, where it says Samuel grieved over Saul, is the word that is normally used for the grieving that goes along over a dead person, the grieving that occurs at a funeral. Thus it may be that Samuel viewed Saul as already dead, in effect. But what is is ironic about all this is that although Saul would never see Samuel again in this life, after Samuel was dead, Saul would seek his advice and his counsel by going to a witch and asking her to bring him up so I can ask him a question. You know, it's it's a commentary on what it means, what are the ultimate means, meanings of rejection of the word of the Lord. And we're seeing, of course, the rejection of the word of the Lord uh, is, is becoming more and more rampant in the church in America. I got an uh, email last week from uh, a young person I hadn't seen in 31 years. He'd been a student at the Alliance Academy in Quito, and he said that today he is a United Methodist minister. And immediately he said, but a good one, he said. <laughs> he says, I'm not one of those liberals. So I thought, well, I hope that's true, but you know we can't castigate any particular denomination. But it can occur in almost any denomination where people lose their rooting in the Word or, or never had a rooting in the Word, and and they go on to to try to be spiritual leaders with no foundation. And of course they're blown about with every wind of doctrine, and willy nilly here. I was really surprised, actually because we have insurance through AARP, why, of course, we have to have membership in AARP, and AARP sends out a magazine, which you probably have seen if any of you were old enough to receive it, called Modern Maturity, <laughs> which isn't something we pour over, but I just was thumbing through it not too long ago, and the letter to the editor was saying something about an article that apparently Shirley MacLaine about her, or she had written in it. I didn't read the article, but... Anyway, saying that something about her, you know, spirituality, and and the person went on to talk about the Bible and the Lord, and I thought, Modern Maturity printed that letter? (laughs) I was very surprised that they printed a letter that was, you know, proclaiming the truth in in the face of a lie. But this is what we're facing today, and the Bible has taken a tremendous pounding in many of the seminaries of this country. And, of course, as you know, the Jesus Seminar and people of that ilk who go around and say, think, think that because of their giftedness and their education that they can stand in judgment upon God's word. I really, have a heart, you know, I really feel sorry for them. I feel a lot like Samuel did about Saul here. You grieve over these people because of the damage they do and what the damage they've done to themselves. Simple faith eludes so many people because it is simple. Just trust and obey, for there is no other way. Well, let's read on to a brighter picture in Chapter 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me one, the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Then it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Just contrast that. You know, with the last, 34th verse of the last chapter where it says, And Samuel went to Ramah. Here it says, Samuel arose and went to Ramah. <laughs> the contrast between the two scenes that he was leaving when he went back to his home is really quite dramatic. I think this is probably several years after the event described in chapter 15. I don't think it happens right away. The Lord comes to Samuel and says to him, uh, you know, you're, you're, you've been grieving here a long time. And he comes to bring another task for Samuel to perform. Samuel had apparently not been doing too many tasks. He'd been doing some of the tasks that were necessary. But the Lord came by what means we're not told. We're not told whether he came in a vision or in a dream or by what method the Lord appeared to, to Samuel. But he did. He spoke to him. doesn't say he appeared, but, but it, that at least that he spoke to him. And you'll notice that the Lord begins the dialogue with a mild rebuke. He says, How long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel was a mighty prophet. Samuel was last of the shofatim. Samuel was the first of Israel's great prophets. The point is that Samuel was also very human a mighty prophet, an ex shofat, yet very human. And he had continued in his distress over. Saul, because of Saul's utter failure to do the will of the Lord, his utter failure to fulfill even his anointing. You know, Samuel had told the people that if you choose a king, you're going to be sorry, but that doesn't mean Samuel wanted it to be that way or that he even hoped it would be that way. To help Samuel deal with his grief, God gave him an exciting task. He was to fill his horn with oil and to prepare to anoint Saul's successor. He had already prophesied that God had chosen a successor, and and we read about it in the previous passage. Someone who was better than he was, better than Saul was, was the word that came out of Samuel's mouth. And yet Samuel didn't know who that person was, only God did. And as the years passed, Samuel was probably wondering about it, but now is his opportunity to discover that person. And what is interesting further about this is that in this particular case, the Lord was a whole lot more specific as to whom this person would be. In the case of Saul, it was kind of like, well, you know, God has chosen somebody and maybe I'll find him. I'll go here and he'll go there. And, and they eventually found each other. But in this case, the Lord said, it's going to be one of the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, I think from the passage, uh, Samuel said, uh, or thought, uh, okay, whoever he is, <laughs> I don't think he knew who Jesse the Bethlehemite was. From Samuel's response to the Lord, however, we must gather that Saul had become so hardened and so foolish in the years that followed his rejection uh, by the Lord as being king over Israel that he actually believed he could prevent God from choosing the person to succeed him. Why else would he threaten Samuel? Why else would Samuel feel threatened? Did he actually make a direct threat to Samuel by some means, since they had not met face to face again? Did he send a message to Samuel saying, the day you go to anoint my successors, the day you die? Or is Samuel simply interpreting interpreting this from the demeanor that Saul was now displaying? It's, It's hard for us to tell, but he certainly felt threatened here. And what this probably means is that he knew he was under surveillance. How would Saul even know he was going someplace to anoint somebody as king? Unless he was being watched. Unless he was being questioned when he left. Did Saul put a spy or a group of spies around to constantly watch Samuel and to check on his every movement? That's what it seems to imply. Otherwise, Samuel would not have felt threatened as he did. Jonathan? It's also possible from the response when he shows up at the village that word would have just gotten out. Whether there was a spy or not, if the village walks up and says, you know, in fear if you come in peace, then probably word of his going somewhere would have reached the kingdom. Once he had actually gotten there and, and begun the process, this is very true. Very good. You know, one of the encouraging things about this is that when, when the Lord says to Samuel, go and do this, and Samuel says, but I might die. The Lord does not rebuke him. The Lord does not say, oh, thou of little faith. He makes no such response to Samuel here. Instead, he instructs him how to go about the task and how to make it so that it would obviously be a part of something else that he was doing. Now, John Calvin tries to say that God trumped up this as a, some kind of a cover for, for Samuel I, I, and I, you know, God isn't into making covers for anybody or anything. This was all part of the process. The sacrifice was an integral part of what was to be done. It's just that all Samuel had to say was he was going to make the sacrifice. He didn't have to say he was going to make a sacrifice and anoint a king if he was questioned along the way. The sacrifice would be a fellowship or, or a peace offering that was to be made. And it was made by invitation only. Only those invited would come to the particular sacrifice. And you remember that when uh, Saul himself went to, to Ramah and Samuel was giving a sacrifice at that time, Saul was one of those invited. Remember, there was just a small group invited to the meal, particularly after the sacrifice. So that seems to be a similar situation here. Again, because the tabernacle appears to have been non-functional at this particular time, such sacrifices were not uncommon, and probably often they were uh, presided over or authorized by Samuel. He was to take with him a heifer. He was to take the sacrificial animal with him to carry out this, this sacrifice. And thus, any observers who saw him traveling off with a heifer going off to make a sacrifice would just say, well, Samuel's doing his job again. Nothing to be concerned about, nothing to be suspicious of. I really like the the, the verse that tells us uh, what happened when when Samuel arrived at Bethlehem. When he arrived to the city of Bethlehem, he was, of course, told he was supposed to invite Jesse to to the sacrifice. And the Lord said to him, once you have gotten there, just trust in me. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do step by step. You're not to be worried about who it is you're going to anoint, because I will show you and I will tell you definitely, specifically, who the person is. So you won't make a mistake. Well, Samuel made the trip. It's not far from, Beth- from Ramah to Bethlehem. It's about 12 miles. Due south. 12 miles by road, shorter than that by air, about probably 9, 10 miles by air. <coughs> Walking right past, uh, near near the site of Jerusalem, Jebus, which of course was not an Israelite city at the, at the time, uh, down to uh, Bethlehem. So it would have taken him probably one long day, less than that, except he had to drag a heifer along with him. And so the heifer isn't going to you know, trot along there. So, you know, mile an hour, probably pretty good pace for a heifer. We see something of... Samuel's reputation as a clear-seeing, uncompromising prophet. I probably, several of the people are still remembering his hewing Agag into pieces here, you know. This is a tough guy. You don't want to cross him. And we see that uh, his reputation preceded him and evoked fear because in the fourth verse of this passage, when, when he came, it, we're told that the elders of the city came trembling And the Hebrew word means quaking with fear. You know, knees knocking, jaws a-chattering, trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace or not? You know, we hope you're coming in peace. Because with God's anointed prophet there, they knew that they might be expected to be obedient. Oh, no. Much to their relief, of course, Samuel informed them that he had come in peace and that he had come to make a sacrifice to which you, the elders of the city, are invited. They were greatly relieved, of course. He instructed them to consecrate themselves, to consecrate themselves. What this basically meant was to perform ritual washing, put on clean clothes, and get your mind oriented off the things of the world and on to the things of God, and come ready for a sacrifice. Now, the scripture tells us that he specifically invited Jesse and his sons. Now, does that mean that Jesse was not one of the elders of the city because all of the elders in black were invited? Or is it because he wanted to make sure Jesse didn't find something else to do and make sure that Jesse knew his sons were also invited? Well, we can only speculate about that. But the elders came, Jesse came, the sons of Jesse came. We're not told anything more about the sacrifice. Just that they they came for the sacrifice. And verse 6 picks up actually a little while later, the same day as the sacrifice, which probably occurred the day after uh, Samuel arrived, because we read, and then it came about when they entered, he looked upon Eliab. Well, you know, that's not the scene of a sacrifice. Could very well be the scene of the sacrificial meal that would occur after the sacrifice. But whatever the case may be, we're told that In in effect, we read that he had gone probably to Jesse's home because it says, and when it came about, they entered. Entered what? Well, possibly they entered the place of sacrifice, a, a, a room where they would have the sacrificial meal, or it could mean that he entered Jesse's home. And I tend to lean towards the latter than towards the former because it seems that the only people here are Jesse and his family. It doesn't seem any others are here in this particular event. Upon entering Jesse's home or the place here, he saw Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. Now, had he never seen him before? Oh, he probably had seen him before at the sacrifice. But now he focused on him. This is his oldest son. Now, Eliab means God is my father. Great name. Apparently from what we read in the passage, he was tall. He was good looking. So Samuel reacted in a typically human way, remembering Saul, Samuel, I'm sorry, Samuel reacted in a typically human way, remembering he is a human being, a mighty prophet, but a human being. And he says in his mind, surely this is the man. Look at him. He's tall. He's handsome. He's regal. It's got to be God's choice because he probably sh- should have checked himself thought, oh, that's the way Saul was, <laughs> taller than anybody else, good-looking guy, seems regal. Immediately, immediately, the Lord spoke to him. Now, how did the Lord speak to him? Probably not audibly, because there's no implication here that Jesse or anybody else heard the Lord speak. So in his mind, in his heart, the Lord spoke, possibly in a vision that only Samuel saw. We don't, we don't know. But the Lord spoke to him and gave him very important instruction concerning the nature of God, Eliab's outward appearance did not qualify him to be king over Israel in God's eyes. Outward beauty is not indicative of inward beauty. In fact, it is rare that outer beauty and inner beauty are coincident. More often than not, physical beauty generates pride, self-centeredness. Let me read the example of the most beautiful creature that God ever made, and how he reacted to his beauty. You know the story, but it's in Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel 28, reading at verse 11, we have to understand that this is within the framework of a particular prophecy having to do with the king of Tyre, but it's looking behind the king of Tyre, not talking about the king of Tyre, but looking behind him and and to the one who was empowering the king of Tyre. So Ezekiel 28 verse 11, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the burl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold of The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquity and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you and it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. Obviously, the king of Tyre could not fit that description. He was not in Eden. He was not per- created in perfection. He was not a man of, wis- of great, perfect wisdom. He's referring, of course, to Satan, to the anointed cherub who covers. And if, if uh, this is a primary example of what physical beauty will do. You know, he he was the most glorious of all the creatures and his beauty went to his head and he became proud and arrogant and decided he wanted to be like the most high. And so, generally speaking, we in this world choose people by their physical appearance and often that turns out to be a very bad choice. All you have to do is look at the stories of the people of Hollywood and Af- story. I mean, you... you t- I mean, if you can find a story of one of those people who turns out to be a really godly and good person, you found a rarity. And so, obviously, God is saying to Samuel, don't pick him because he looks the part. I know the heart, and I will choose according to the heart. Apparently, at some point, Samuel informed Jesse as to his purpose in asking to be to come to Jesse's home. So when Eliab failed, failed the test, he brought a second son, whose name was Abinadab. That means father of nobility, father of generosity. Two guys have great names. But the Lord rejected Abinadab also. So Jesse summoned his third son, Shama, whose name is totally out of sync with the rest of them. It means desolation. Oh, yes. Royal desolation. I don't know. In like manner, Jesse brought seven of his sons before Samuel. <laughs> it's sort of like a, you know, a one-man judge here with seven guys parading in front of him, one of whom is to be chosen and anointed as the next king of Israel. Since he had presented all of his sons, whom he thought to be likely candidates, Jesse probably began to question whether Samuel knew what in the world he was doing. Do you know what you're doing? Do you really hear the voice of the Lord here, or are you just making your own judgment calls here? You know, Jesse doesn't say this, but I'm pretty sure it was in his mind. And I think Samuel, too, was becoming a little bit frustrated. No, Lord? Not this one either? Are you sure? Oh, okay. I'll go on to the next guy. I mean, we're, we've gone through seven guys here. Um, I don't see any more yeah. in, the, in the waiting room here. Obviously, Samuel was not familiar with Jesse's family because he asked him, Do you have another son? Obviously, he didn't know them. And Jesse responded that the youngest had not pre- been presented because he was out tending the sheep. Somebody had to work. In that day, honor and respect were very closely tied to birth order. And of course, we know how all of that played out going back to the sons of Jacob and Joseph and all the ramifications of that. David was the youngest, and therefore he was seen as the least likely to possibly qualify for a high-ranking position, especially that of king in Israel. So Samuel said to Jesse, Well, by the way, we're not sitting down to this sacrificial meal or whatever it was they were going to sit down to until we've solved this problem, until God has made his ruling on all your sons, so you better call, call the last son. <laughs> Jesse thought <laughs> No, I'm very skeptical about this. I'm sure he thought in his own mind. But he sent a servant to get David anyway. And although we see in this passage that David, we're told, was physically attractive, he had not been seriously considered as a candidate for God's call. From the human point of view, God often calls the most unlikely person to the position. It's really amazing how God works. And when you think about it, though, it's part of his character because he teaches us that what is it that we do that demonstrates godliness? We go out and minister to the unwanted of the world. We reach out and touch the widows and the orphans and and those that are oppressed. And, And this is the way God is, not that David is any of those things, but David was thought to be the least the one nobody would consider to be king. I mean, he's just... Now, I want to say here, we shouldn't consider him to be just a little kid. We've got to get away from that old Sunday school idea that he was like a nine-year-old little boy, you know. He was a man. He was an adult. And he just happened to be the youngest. And he wasn't as tall as Eliab, but he was a very attractive young man. David would be the one upon whom God would put his call and would be the one that God would raise up And again, when we get to the story of David versus Goliath, yes, Goliath was bigger than David, but David wasn't just a little pipsqueak out there. You know, nine-year-old kid who couldn't wear the armor because it was too big for him, the armor of Saul. David was an adult, and that's why I love Michelangelo. (laughs) Michelangelo's David is the David I think of in the story of Goliath. Not some little kid, you know, who's who's running around in, in a sheepskin. Of course, Michelangelo's David is not even wearing a sheepskin. <laughs> I think I want a little more armor than that if I'm going out to battle. But, but that's the David in terms of, of a man uh, who, who goes to battle. Well, I don't want to spoil the whole thing here having to do with David, so we'll, we'll pick it up. Don, Yes. It's amazing to me these two chapters, how much New Testament theology we have in the New Testament. The Lord looks on the heart rather than the outward appearance and God desires uh, obedience rather than sacrifice. Don Kenyon, who was my supervisor when I came on at Simpson, had a passion for what he called redemptive synthesis. He traced that theme from Genesis 3 to Malachi 4 to practically everything he did. Wow, that's great. That's one of the reasons I like the Old Testament so much. It tends to be ignored and yet what you find in the news in the Old, it's all there. No, I have not this before until you pointed it out, but in, in Hebraic understanding, um, David was the eighth son, and the eighth day is always a new beginning. Hebraic understanding. So he was a new beginning. They never noticed that you the seventh, the eighth one. That's good insight, yeah, great. He was the new beginning Sure was, wasn't he? Yeah, good, thank you.